0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition, Lift off. Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning at WorkinSports.com, and this is the Work in Sports Podcast. If we have learned anything over the last year, it is that we all must constantly adjust or we will watch the world pass us by. Quick story. In 2006, I went to Europe for the first time. My wife was competing in a field hockey tournament that took us to Germany, Amsterdam, Scotland, and Belgium. It was an amazing trip. I can't wait to go back again. In Germany, we visited Charlemagne's castle. Not Charlemagne the god, the Charlemagne who was the king of Franks. The castle was amazing, it was built in 790. And it was really cool, just what you'd expect a castle to look like. It had the turrets, it had the grand ballrooms, lots of castle stuff. Lots of rocks. Later on in the trip, we went to Scotland. We visited Edinburgh, another beautiful castle built in 1103. 300 years later. 300 years later. What struck me is that very little had changed. The architecture, building processes, planning, and arrangement of spaces, not all that different. I'm sure some historian would argue with me, but it was castle v. Castle, and they were very, very similar, despite being 300 years separated. That is not the world we live in anymore. Things change exponentially every five years. Everything changes. Think about your life in 2016. Sounds like a pretty long time ago, right? Think about your phone, social media, analytics, electric cars, self-driving cars, just what you did to entertain yourself. Everything changes at ridiculous speed right now. In 2016, you may have actually had cable. Not anymore, right? We're all in some streaming service. These monumental shifts happen all the time. Will you adjust or will you stand pat trying to slow down the world and make it fit what you remember and like? I don't think there's much of a choice, is there? One of the many things that strikes me about today's guest, Ben Baskin, senior writer and podcast host for Religion of Sports, is his ability to adapt without sacrificing what he loves. Here's what I mean. Ben got his master's in journalism at Columbia, worked at Sports Illustrated for five years, loved in-depth storytelling and research and reporting, the craftsmanship that goes into creating a long-form piece. That's what excited him. If you told him he had 10,000 words on the Chicago Bears, he'd salivate trying to figure out the best angle and the best reporting to craft his missive. But the world changed under his feet. Too long didn't read became a thing. People stopped reading. Content bosses wanted clickbait and listicles, debate shows, and digital-first content structures. Now, Ben could have sat back and pined for the good old days from 2013 when people (laughs) were reading And maybe in his quiet moments, he does. But I like the action he took instead. He took his long-form storytelling chops to podcasting, crafting, really crafting amazing stories for his Lost in Sports podcast. It is my favorite show. Ben is my favorite storyteller, and you must start listening to this amazing style of content that should captivate and engage all of you. Ben adjusted his craft to fit the audience demands. And it worked. Will you do the same when faced with a similar challenge? It's up to you. Look, this conversation is amazing. Buckle up. We have a lot of sharing to do. Here's Ben Baskin. Hey, Ben, what's happening?
1: Not much. How are you, Brian? I appreciate you having me on here.
0: I'm excited. This is a conversation I love to have. I haven't had a lot of fellow podcast hosts on the show, but... um, I came up in sports journalism. I love sports journalism. I love the storytelling and the changes that have happened in our industry. so I'm just excited to jump into this conversation with you. me
1: too. no, that sounds great i I'm, I'm excited to be on and uh, talk a little bit about you know sports writing, sports journalism, sports podcasting. It's a new title for me you know in the last year. I know so right still getting I love too. the way
0: the media has changed. Um, I love and I'm not just saying this. I love your podcast. Thank um, you. I love the highly produced storytelling aspect of it and the angle and the niche and I want to get into that I want to talk about it a lot but let's let's just let's just dive into that there's there's so many things we want to talk about in sports journalism today's era of content but let's dive into the podcast a little bit because I'm a fan um, for those who haven't listened yet it's lost in sports but tell everybody a little bit about it give it a little bit of a background we'll get into the how it got started and, and what your kind of purpose is in that mission
1: Absolutely. So yeah, the podcast is called Lost in Sports. It's uh, produced by Religion of Sports and PRX, and a partnership. Uh, Religion of Sports is the company I work for. You probably, you know, might know the name, but you definitely know the projects. You know, the Tom vs. Times and the Greatness Code and the, you know, the Simone Biles uh, documentary. So they're very, you know, uh, big in sports video documentaries. You know, we're owned by Tom Brady and Michael Strahan, Gotham Chopra. Kind of have built a real strong niche in the sports video storytelling world. Um, but in the last year, they have, we have, you know, started on this audio podcasting, audio storytelling um, wave that obviously is huge these days. And what we did is hired a bunch of former SI reporters, writers like myself, a bunch of audio producers, um, editors, APs, all that stuff. And, you know, what I, when my project is, Lost in Sports, um, I kind of had this idea Going back, a, you know, over a year ago today, that I wanted to do a sports podcast, a narrative sports podcast, reported that solved mysteries. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a, a this weird hodgepodge of, of a variety of things that I liked in sports podcasts. You know, I liked sports podcasts that were highly reported, that yeah. were not just telling one piece of a story. You know, that's not what I did when I wrote at SI. You know, trying to tell a full encompassing story. Um, By, you know, interviewing a bunch of people. But I also loved podcasts that are kind of fun and have an air of, you know, not taking themselves so seriously. Um, And I love sports, you know, podcasts, not sports podcasts, because I think we're the only one, but I love podcasts that dealt in mystery, you know, solving something, something that had a tangible question that you then answer, kind of can go on this journey. So what we did, what I kind of created was this idea to go back in sports history and to go back to things that have been lost, disappeared, or forgotten. Sort of the things in sports that are no longer, that have disappeared, that some of these, you know, are Mm -hmm. stories that you'll remember and say, Oh yeah, whatever happened to that thing? You know? Oh yeah. I remember that in the nineties or two thousands, whatever happened. And then others are things that I stumbled upon that no one has ever heard of kind of the disappeared things that never even made it to a mainstream audience. But for, you know, a variety of reasons, I came across them in my time as a writer or just as a fan of sports or just, you know, one of them just on a, you know, a deep dive on the Internet um, that I kind of stumbled upon something that, you know, I was fascinated by. So what we do is we set up a question and then we talk to a lot of people and we answer that question.
0: I, I love it. Um, again, like when I was in on the sports television side and when you were going to cover a story, you had to think in advance of everything you needed, every piece of B roll, every interview you needed to do, every structuring piece of 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 bridge copy. There's so much that goes into producing this entire concept to make it into a three minute story that you might do as a feature element on your TV show. You're producing that at a 45 minute kind of level clip. There is so much effort that goes into the structure and planning and creation of this. Has this been like an enormous project? Like once you got into the podcasting realm and this audio production, has this been beyond your even expectations of how this process would work?
1: So far beyond that (laughs) it's not even comparable to what I thought I was getting myself into. Um, And that's partly because we're a very small team. Um, It's pretty much a three person team that's making this, including myself. We have a senior producer and a production assistant who are fantastic. Um, But yes, in the last, you know, this is a year in the making from when we started this, you know, the reporting of it back last summer and all of this, you know, mind you, is pandemic reporting. So we didn't get to travel anywhere. All of these are phone calls, which adds a whole nother level of, you know, storytelling uh, maneuvering to kind of try to create the scenes when you're not being able to go out in places. But in the last six months now, this year, once we started getting into the actual production of the episodes, making them, turning them out, you know, you can do all the reporting, you can do all the outlining, you can set up, you know, what you think the story is gonna be as you kind of discover it. And the thing with these is I didn't want, obviously you go in and you want to have a concept of what your story's gonna be. But yeah. when you're dealing with mysteries and you're dealing with things that haven't really been discussed or talked about or written about, you don't know where you're going to end up. So mm-hmm. as much as, you know, you, you, a lot of times you have to interview a whole lot of people to answer a question. For one of these, I talked to nearly 30-something people, three really? dozen interviews um, yeah. for our second episode. So all that's to say, when you actually get to making this thing, obviously you can't fit all those people into it. You can't fit all of the threads and the stories that interest you when you talk to people into it. And you really have to figure out a way to tell the story in a tangible way that audiences can listen to. That's enjoyable. That's entertaining. Answers the question, solves the mystery, Mm -hmm. doesn't lose the audience and still tells a true, fair, accurate story based on the reporting, which is really difficult to do in audio narrative podcasts when you, when you don't have the, the, latitude you have in writing. You can't write something like you can in audio. It's just very different. So yes, the all that's to say, you know, the last seven months now have been, um, you know, pretty much starting my day at five in the morning and ending my day at nine at night and um, doing that seven days a week.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that won't stop ever. <laughs> no. <yeah>. Uh, <laughs> so, because the appetite will just continue to grow and you'll continue chasing the next story and it just is a, an ongoing thing. And just to give everybody perspective, On our show, I'm able to conduct an interview and then put it in somewhat raw form, put an intro and an outro on it, and that's a show. Like, for you, you literally have to go through every little structural piece to build a story with multiple, multiple, multiple components. That's a lot harder to accomplish. So I'm giving you tons of credit. I listened to my first episode of your show where you uncovered the Cleveland Browns' 1986 Masters of the Gridiron movie. Now... Little bit of background so everybody knows what we're talking about. The Cleveland Browns literally created a video in 1986 after the Chicago Bears did the Super Bowl shuffle, and they wanted to kind of up the level a little bit. So they actually made a short... Film. It was like 15 minutes long, and it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my entire life. I think I've watched it 10 times now. Um, I still laugh at how seriously Clay Matthews took the entire event. Um, Clay Matthews was a linebacker for the Cleveland Browns. He had a son who played in the NFL as well, Clay Matthews, that many of you probably know. And you're watching this, and it's this farcical thing, and it's this crazy storyline, and then one guy in every group is always taking it way too seriously, and so it just made me laugh. I've been in the sports industry for 25 years, known a lot of Cleveland Brown fans, never heard about this. You uncovered this mystery. When something like that happens where you're like, oh my gosh, this is gold. Like, What is that feeling like for you as a journalist and reporter and host to say, this is awesome? (laughs) Well,
1: it's an interest. So that goes back when I was at SI and I was in Cleveland working on uh, a cover story on the Browns you know this is the that summer before when they get Odell Beckham and everyone's kind of you know saying the Browns are back and that they you know the Browns are going to be the next hot thing so we I had a couple of relations I knew Jarvis Landry had worked with him I knew the team you know so I went out there to do a cover story on the team um, and what I was you know focused on with that story is the history and the, you know the, the everything that brought them to that moment and I was in the office of a source I was interviewing uh, just across the street from Brown Stadium, and he's giving me a tour of his office. And right as we're walking around, and we have the audio that we use in the, in the clip, uh, in the podcast, just a sh- short clip of it, where he points out on his wall a framed photograph um, of a football team fighting ninjas in a castle. So that's what I see. It's a, I, I, took, I took a it's photo. It's just so funny
0: every time I hear it. Go ahead, it keep going.
1: I, I took the photo on my phone because he, he goes, You know, you got it. Uh, when you get home, Google Masters of the Gridiron. It's the craziest thing you'll ever watch. So I take a photo of this, you know, this image, and it's, you know, a bunch of football players in their full barbarian outfits storming a castle. There's a, a bear, uh, Tiny Tim's up There's there. and um, And so my initial thought. You know, I kind of, I, I did go, like I, I was fascinated by it. I said, what the hell is this? Cause you're like, you know, I worked in the NFL. I'd been a f- football fan my whole life. Never heard about this. No. I was shocked I'd never heard about it. I was like, what are they talking about? So, but the thing with that, so you go home. I think I, I think I went back to my, I don't think I did it when I went. So I went home and then I didn't look at it until I transcribed that interview. Cause then I transcribed the interview and I hear him mention it again. And for anyone who's transcribes an interview, all you're looking for when you're transcribing an interview is a way to not transcribe that interview. Anything (laughs) that can get you away from transcribing is, you know, welcome. So I go into that, I come upon this and I'm like, Oh, well now I'm going to look it up. And that's when I watched the video for the first time. And of course, you know, the first thought is this is incredible. This is new. This is something I've never heard of. But at that time you need to like, just having the idea, just having something like that is not a story like until, You know, you have to figure out what the story is for people to care. Just an interesting video that the Browns made might be like a nice um, slideshow Mm. type thing. It might be something that you can kind of make a tweet about. But to turn it into a a long form story or a 45 minute podcast, then you needed to kind of figure out what's actually the story of this. What's the tension? What's the narrative? What are the characters? What matters? Why is anyone going to care about this? Um, And for me, that was lucky because I knew enough about the Browns and their history and the city and where they were in the 80s and what that team meant that there was some, you know, incipient thoughts of here's a bigger story here. Here's something interesting. Um, But, you know, so so that comes to like when I do have this idea for a podcast of things lost, disappeared or forgotten, that was front and center in my head of okay, this is, a, this is one, you know, that's... And it took a little bit of convincing of, for people to say, you know, because a lot of people will say, well, who's going to care about the Browns? You know, who's going to care about this outside Cleveland? And then when you start talking to people and you find out that Mike, Lolis Babb are two of the, you know, just, just the, the most gregarious, affable, mm-hmm. great people, and then you hear the, their story and what the video meant to them and kind of the tension of that season, then you start kind of having the wheels turn of, okay, there's something actually here that we can make into a story that people outside of the fan base in 1986 Cleveland are gonna care about.
0: Yeah, and you bring in the history of it all too. I really love the depth of it. It's not just, the whole story isn't just about the Masters of the Gridiron movie. It's about the, the frame of mind at the time and what was going on in the era and what was happening in Cleveland. And you bring in personalities from Cleveland. And again, I've never even been to Cleveland. I might have driven through. But I was, I was, it was gripping. I was just Thank so you. into it. And to be able to continue this. Now, I have to ask. I mean, you start out the podcast and it's your very first episode. And the first voices you hear other than yours are the Russo brothers, the director's of Avengers Endgame and multiple other movies. I mean, for real? Like, like, really? Like, I'm, I'm sitting here as a fellow podcast host being like, wait, you got the Russo brothers for your first episode? Like, how does something like that even happen? Like, you just have their number and call them up and say, hey, I've got this really quirky Cleveland Browns video, I wanna chat. I mean, like, how, how does, I'm just in awe. I, th- I, well, I think, you know, uh, the Russo brothers have a list of,
1: of all people in the world that have Avengers figurines on their bookshelf. <laughs> yes, so, there you go. You know, that gave me the in right there. And this is exactly where I did that podcast, you know, and I, I, I made, embarrassed myself immediately by pointing out my Avengers figurines. But no, that was one, you know, luckily um, our company, Gotham Chopra, our CEO, our founder, had a, you know, knew them a little bit, has worked with them. So I got yeah. a, a, an email address to the right person, And the Russo brothers, you know, God bless them. They were immediately, immediately completely in on this idea. They were fascinated by it. They bought in more than I ever would have imagined because not only are they Cleveland Browns fans, but they're filmmakers, Yeah, you know, they're storytellers. They loved the aspect of this movie being made by their favorite football team Um, and watching it with them. um, You know, I'm a, I, I love the Russo brothers. I love Everything they've done, you know, that was a high point for me to to talk with them and to introduce to them a a piece of art that they didn't know existed, that they appreciated. Um, You know, that was all time for me. Uh, And it was I thank them so much. They were such good sports about it. They enjoyed watching it. And, you know, they gave us such a great intro with, uh, you know, the question because they had the same questions I had. You know, how did that bear get there? Why did they do this? You know, what what is all this? What does it mean? So it kind of sets us up sort of throwing you into this world for a cold open because um, we do a lot of different cold opens in the show. We try and mix it up for each episode. Yeah. And that was one where you just kind of get thrown right into the mystery of this. You know, here I am on my quest talking to the Russo brothers and they're setting up questions that I also had. And now we're going to go answer those questions for Joe and Anthony Russo.
0: That's crazy. And just to give everybody perspective too, you are you are all going to go watch this video now. I know that you're all intrigued enough now and you're gonna listen to Ben's podcast. But to give you a little bit of background, Mike Babb was the center for the Cleveland Browns and he was kinda he and his wife were the originators of this project, and he literally wrestles a black bear during the video during this movie. And I was I was so anticipating that portion, and it's only like, I don't know, maybe five seconds of the entire thing, but it's, it. there's two different scenes of him wrestling a bear. It's it's just madness.
1: Just sort of in the background, kind of just wrestling for no yeah, reason. Yeah, it was much. like the
0: classic 80s interlude music video period when it has like sh- scenes of him wrestling a bear. It was unbelievable. I still yeah. can't get over it. Um, okay, so from a workflow standpoint, I produce two episodes a week. We churn things out a little bit more. We have a different kind of a, a style and approach to our our, our content. What is the time frame? I know you started this project a year ago and you have multiple episodes, but like to take a project like this from idea to execution, what are we talking about as far as timeline and for your your involvement in that process? I mean, how long does it take you to go to finish from idea to finished product?
1: <sighs> Feels interminable sometimes. Yeah. Um so it's rapidly changing. I will I will say that because of uh you Know the way you, you, you spend time on the first couple episodes and then you get to the latter end of the season, and you don't have that time anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, Matt, is that our first few episodes, um, you know, you, you do all we did all the reporting last year, so we broke it up into segments. I started reporting three stories, the first three stories last summer. We reported those for months, um, you know, in, in and out, kind of you know, you sometimes you're on one for a week and yeah. depending on who's picking up calls and such, um, and then we started working on the next three, um, you know, reporting those and a lot of things that, you know, we were constrained by because we actually didn't even have our AP until later on last year. Um, a lot of things that we could do a little differently now, but then you start, you know, eventually you, you realize, okay, you're done reporting. We got to put a pin on it. You're never really done reporting cause you can report yeah. forever, but eventually we're like, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're good enough to be say we're done unless something crazy happens. Um, and then you start putting your, your story together and you start, you know, we, we start with the first one and it takes, to be honest, months, um, you know, from something I didn't really realize in audio, obviously with, you know, ignorance is just the amount of work when you do so many interviews to that. You know, I'm used to doing an interview, especially if it's a phone interview that I would just be transcribing while I'm talking and then I have it all in front of me. Um, but and then you don't have to do anything with it. But with audio, my producers have to log log the tape. They have to put it in the system. They got to get it in Pro Tools. They got to cut it all. You know, so each step of that takes a long time. And then you put a mix together, and then you got to write out of it. And then, so, it, it, so our first few episodes were, mu- especially our second episode, which went, and one, which went through more drafts of anything than I can ever mm-hmm. imagine anything's ever gone through. Because you, the other thing I didn't realize with audio is, I'm used to, if I see a problem, if I write something and you say, okay, this isn't working, I need to reframe it, I need to restructure mm-hmm. it, I need to start, maybe the end's the start, or the middle's yep. the... T- when you do that in audio, you can do that, I could do it all day, you know, I can spend all morning, I can spend three days doing it on paper, but until someone then goes and does that in the actual production, you don't mm-hmm. hear how it sounds, you don't know if the story's working. So each of that, that's another, You know, every one of those steps of the process is another day, two days, yep. three days, where I do something, My producers have to make the changes, then we have to listen to it, then we got to make more changes. So, um, you know, we're in a place now where our last two episodes, based on time crunch and necessity and running low on time, are going to be truncated, extremely truncated in that process, which is both, you know, fine because we've learned the process a lot more. This was all done on the fly in the last year, you know all kind of learning as we go, new company, new you yep. know, team together. So um, it's a, it's, it's a months long, you know, it takes a long time. It takes a team. It takes, uh, you know, a variety of, of effort, of, of reframing, of rewriting, of re-listening, of cutting. A lot of characters don't make it, you know, in, you try and fit as many people as you can. And then you realize there's only so many people that a listener can remember. If yep. you put 20 characters in a story, they're going to forget yep. who's who. So, it's trial and error, but uh, eventually you get to a place where you say, okay, this this works, this sounds good, the story's true, the story's fair, and hopefully it's entertaining. And then you publish it and hope for the best.
0: Going through all your years as a journalist, Sports Illustrated and other places, including Religion of Sports, I, I, being creative is such a huge part of it, right? And being able to come up with angles, pitching story ideas. Is this ability something that has always come naturally to you, or was this something you had to work on and refine over time.
1: You definitely have to refine everything over time. I would say the the, thing, the thing for me, it's, it's, oh, it's easy to have an idea. You know, it's easy to say like, to me, the difference, especially when I was at SI, you know, it's easy to say, Hey, this is an interesting athlete. You know, I did a lot of profiles SI does a lot of profiles and it's easy. It's not a hard skill to be able to say, Hey, this guy's really good. This quarterback's really playing well. This wide receiver's had four touchdowns, you know. That's easy enough to just watch sports and say, hey, well, let's write about this guy. Yeah. But what becomes difficult is that's not a story. It kind of goes back to what, you know, and too many profiles these days do think that's a story, that, you know, we'll find someone that's really good and discuss why they're really good. And, and that's not to say I haven't done those in my, myself, you know. When you're, mm-hmm. when you're, that's the easy story. But what what you need to refine is then figuring out from there what the real story is. What's something that's actually beyond, hey, this guy's really good at football. This guy's really good at basketball. What's the tension? What's the universal theme? Um, And that does take a while to kind of figure it out and to figure out what makes a story work and why people will care about this story. Um, And that's something, you know, I'm obviously still refining. And I think every writer is still refining, even the best in the business um, that do this, you know, guys like Wright Thompson, uh, yep. a friend of mine, you know, who I think would do this as well as anyone, um, you know, everyone's still refining, kind of figuring out what that story is. Um, so that, you know, and that's something sometimes you, it's trial and error. Sometimes you have to figure out, you know, what doesn't work to figure out what does work. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's also sometimes you have to do a, a, some phone calls first, you know, that's a, something that gets lost now. Um, when we're trying to tell stories so quickly and trying to write things so quickly and trying to get churn out content is that sometimes you got to try a story and talk to three people to see if there is a story there and then maybe a punt and you move on to the next one. But you know, like the legwork that goes into the genesis of a story on the, on the front end yeah. pays off on the back end when you actually know what your story is and what you're trying to tell. So that's a, something that you know, we're, we all work on.
0: I think that's amazing advice because I think a lot of times in today's environment, we go into the churn mentality of we just got to bang something out. We just got to come up with a new idea. We got another show to produce. We got another piece to element. We got another thing we got to push out on social media, whatever it may be. And you get into a churn mentality rather than a development mentality. Um, is that nice for you now? Uh, I mean, we've all been in situations where it's like I got you know a, a new – day of news, a news of the day kind of thing, I got to churn out really fast, or I've got this feature story that runs tomorrow, or whatever, you're churning really fast. Does it, is it nice for you as a storyteller to be able to take a little bit more time and dedicate to these stories and really be a craftsman?
1: That's how, so that's how I kind of landed here is in the sense of, you know, I realized that the long form storytelling is, Sadly, not all that respected anymore. Um, It's not all that, you know, it doesn't have as much audience for it because people of my generation stopped reading and don't want to read and don't enjoy reading. And it it hurts my soul, but that's what I grew up on. As you know, I have all these books back here, Gary Smith and W.C. Hines and all the guys that I grew up, you know, reading, Bill Knack and all that. But what I realized is that a lot of people that don't read, like to listen for whatever reason they can spend 45 minutes listening to a podcast instead of reading that story. Um, and you know, that's, that's, that's the way of the world. So I wanted to, you know, I, I thought you can still tell the same types of long form, in-depth stories just in podcast form. And, I thought it was going to be more similar than I, you know, than it ended up being. It's not quite that apples to apples. It's a very different beast. It's a different medium, and I did, you know, did I? I mine are episodic, so each episode's its own story. Whereas if you tell a narrative podcast, maybe you could dive in for you know six different parts um, of a story. So, but I do think yes, I do think there is um, a part. I, I love being able to spend time on a story. I love being able to you know, interview a bunch of people to really understand that story. Whereas, you know, instead of interviewing one person and telling that kind of, you know, quick, quick hitting story. And that's, you know, there's, there's people that do that fantastic newspaper writers around the country that are great at churning out, you know, elevated news type stories. But I've always been interested in diving into a subject, understanding it, and then telling it, you know, not just not just telling the story, but telling what it means, um, if that makes sense, kind of giving it. Because oh, yeah. it's not just, you know, the journalist's job to just say, hey, this happened. We're also supposed to be, you know, limiting a narrative uh, that get people to care and understand it. So, yeah, I do think um, the podcast world and what we're doing now allows, you know, to, allows you to chew on the story a little bit more. You know, I've been working on some of these episodes for a year now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, definitely, definitely have ample time to, to really work on each one.
0: I think that's one of the most important messages everybody listening can really glean from this is that it's not just in sports journalism. It's in any facet of any industry. There's always constant change, and you have to keep up with it. And if you just kept like trying to write articles when people aren't reading articles anymore, it's always constantly understanding your audience because everybody has an audience, right? It could be your boss. It could be you know people out there watching. It could be whatever it is. The boss or the the audience is always changing, and you have to change with it. And that's period. You know, it's like full stop. Like you, you can't keep doing things that are no longer attractive to an audience or else you're going to become a dinosaur. And the fact that you're able to continually recreate yourself and say, all right, if this is how people are digesting content now, I'm going to lean into that. I think that's really respectable. I find that a lot of young people today try to jump past a lot of the development phases and they're Teenagers saying to themselves, I'm going to start a sports podcast, or I'm going to start a sports YouTube channel, or I'm going to start a sports X, Y, or Z. Nothing against them. Love the gumption. Love that they're going after it. But you really developed and earned this position. UVA for undergrad, master's in journalism at Columbia, five years at Sports Illustrated as a reporter and staff writer before joining Religion of Sports and getting this creative outlet. How much did that process of going through these steps and building your foundation in sports journalism really help you get where you are now?
1: Oh, it's invaluable. It's not even, you know, a question in that regard. I would say, um, you know, it's the same thing as anything else in life. You know, the, the old 10,000 hour rule, you know, you're not, you know, I I didn't know what I was doing when I started at SI, I got lucky. Um, in a lot of ways, um, you know, I, I would say, uva i was i wrote for the school paper and i was much you know i didn't i, I started as pre-med i uh, was going to be a doctor um and then i decided well that wasn't ever going to work as i'm sitting in a you know I had a, I had a internship at a hospital after my freshman year and you know i realized that i'm sitting in this hospital you know crunch, crunching numbers on a spinal surgery data but in reality all i wanted to do was this is the era of LeBron James and the decision that was that year. So all yeah, I was doing good, was yeah. writing on my free time about, uh, you know, the Knicks, which I grew up, you know, my team. So I came back to UVA. Sorry. I worked for the, I, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's it's fair. Right. I know
1: there's bright, bright days ahead, but, uh, sure. Um, sure. Keep telling I, went, yourself that. I, I went to, I went to UVA and, uh, joined the school paper, but even then I didn't, you know, we didn't really have a journalism program in Virginia. We had a school paper I covered a bunch of teams, you know, cross country and soccer and, you know, all the, I did a bunch of that stuff, but I didn't know what I was doing then either. Kind of was just writing, you know, whatever else was in the paper. I wrote a column. That was sort of what I became known at there is I had like a, a very dumb Bill Simmons-esque column, which is, you know, I look back on with horror, but like that's what I was, <laughs> that's what was drawing me at that time. But it wasn't until I went to Columbia for journalism school that kind of everything changed for me. Um, I met a mentor there, Sandy Padway, who's a longtime editor at Sports Illustrated, Um, one of the more respected editors in, you know, sports journalism, especially from a a bygone era. Um, He's the best. He taught me how to, you know, look at sports, how to report, how to tell a real story, you know, all the things I've been saying, it all originated with him and his class and him being my thesis advisor and kind of getting a crash course on what it actually means to tell long form sports stories. Um, and then you go to SI and, you know, then you find a whole new set of mentors, you know, writers that you once read who are yeah. now, you know, befriending you. There is a, you know, it's it's great in this industry as, as cutthroat and as, you know, everyone wants, you know, to, to have the best story. I have found that a lot of older writers, especially if they see that you have something, you know, the, the, the care to make a story good, they will help yeah. you teach how to do that. And at SI, you know, you start, I started as a reporter, um, which is pretty much a fact checker in a lot of ways. So I fact checked the stories of these great sports journalists at SI, you know, Lee Jenkins, um, yeah. Alexander Wolf, uh, Jack McCallum, Greg Bishop, all these guys that allowed me into their process by fact checking because, you know, and I was, I I was thirsty for the knowledge, you know, a lot, you can look at fact checking, you can take that job as just sort of the lowest level of the totem pole. And all you're doing is checking facts. And you know, yes, this is correct. No, it isn't. I looked at it much more as this is a way into the process. And you're getting, you know, Alexander Wolf would send a dossier of all the reporting, a physical document in the mail, showing you how he Crafted the story. I got this from this. I got this interview here. Lee Jenkins did something similar all these people allowed you in and if you asked questions They would tell you you know, this is how I did this. This is how I did that So you learn how to do an interview you learn how to craft a story Um, And that just comes piece by piece and then obviously until you start doing it until you start writing It doesn't mean anything because then you have to learn on your own how you want to do it and how you can kind of incorporate everything you've learned into your own style Um, And that's something obviously everyone's still working on, I'm still working on. But all those years, you know, being around people, finding mentors, finding people, learning how they do things, uh, you know, that sets you on a a path to be able to then do it yourself. If you're just thrown into it, you know, unless, you know, I'm sure there's some prodigies out there that could, you know, write their first story and have it, you know, win a Pulitzer. But I have most people and they need a little bit of that time to uh, to figure out what what, what we're doing in, in this industry.
0: I think it's great too that you're, what you're saying too is, it's like, it's how you frame your mind around some of these experiences. Like some people will tell me like, oh, I'm on this internship and I'm filing folders and I'm doing this, nothing that exciting. And it's like, well, If I had somebody say this to us on a previous podcast, she's like, yeah, I had to file folders for an internship, but I had to read all the files in order to know where to put them. And every time I'm reading their marketing strategy or I'm reading this and I'm understanding how they operate and and how they're structuring their business or where the revenue comes in from, I'm like, that's the right attitude. And what you're saying is as a fact checker, like, yeah, I could look at that as being a, a mundane task, or I could look at it as a way to really learn how this entire process works. And it's like, that's how you have to frame your mind around experience, especially when you're when you're first starting out, I think that's so important. Um, I'm always curious about this. You've, you primarily covered the NFL during your years at, at SI. How hard is it to break in as a new voice in that realm? I mean, you mentioned earlier, like, Oh yeah, I knew Jarvis Landry, but you had to get to that point. I mean, you're, you're a grad student coming out of Columbia, you're thrown into sports illustrated. You, you'd spend time as a fact checker, then you'd put on the NFL beat or whatever, whatever it is, however it works. But like, you're competing against the people that have been in the industry for decades. You're competing with the Peter Kings of the world and all these other people that know everybody. It's like how do you start to build your brand, build connections, get sources, gain credibility? Like that seems really hard to me.
1: It, yeah, so I would say it's it's twofold in that world because you know, I was never I never wanted to be nor profess to be nor try to be sort of one of the NFL news breakers. I never you know, I didn't, I had people I talked to, I had people I could ask info, but like I was never a guy with sources that's going you know, to, you know, be texting like Adam Schefter to get, you know, yeah. the next, because I, one, I just don't, there's enough of those people out there already yeah. um, and they do a great job. Two, I don't care. Um, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't care if uh, it's news of a trade is broken an hour before the team tweets it. I don't understand why people do care. Um, I, it, it baffles me. But I, it was never something that I wanted to compete with, um, both based on my own you know, predilections and also just, you're not, I'm not going to win that battle. I'm not a guy that's going to be able to you know, cultivate sources that are going to tell me when the GM gets fired. But what I could do is, and what anyone can do is, what I managed to kind of do in, in SI is, one, obviously, just being able to have SI at, when you send an email was a, a door opener. Obviously yeah. what, what you then make of that is your own doing. So for me, it was telling stories that were fair and showed care and attention. And, you know, obviously I like to think that they were well written and, and they were well done, but for people in sports, for the people you're interviewing, they're not reading something saying, wow, this was a great piece of literature they're reading it saying, was this fair to me? Did they take my interview that we gave you and write it in a way that captured what I was trying to say? Did he talk to enough people? Did he phone it in? You know, and one thing I think anyone who's ever, you know, dealt with me or worked with me is I will not, I don't phone in a story, whether whatever it is, you know, if it's the, if it seems like the easiest, you know, one that you're just getting out of, Every story to me is sort of as important as the next one. Um, so I will make that next phone call. Um, I will make the extra call. I will do the extra day of reporting, whether it keeps you up, you know, late. And I think that then comes through the story in a way where you have—it's clear that you care about what you're writing and you want to make it accurate and you're not giving a half-assed effort. I'm sorry if I cursed. I don't know if I'm no, allowed to do totally that. No, it's totally fine. I've um, had plenty of people. <laughs> but so so then so then you write that story and someone, you know, you, then you build your kind of uh, foundation that you can then show to the next person. Hey, I did this story. I would love to tell your story. Um, you know, I told this story that with care and deafness and tact. This is a tough story that I would like to do as well. Um, and then you get, you know, then obviously you have agents and PR managers, but also athletes that... Um, you know, they gets, they know, you know, they know who's, who, you get a reputation. They know who, who the people that, you know, are, are trying to do something good and who are just there to cash a paycheck. So, um, I, that's the easiest thing is just care about what you're doing. Um, do it well and put, you know, all your attention and care into it. And it will be recognized. That's not to say it's going to be lucrative really, you know, that you're going to get some giant, uh, you know, ESPN money from it, but, um, it people will see if you're caring about it. And conversely, they'll see if you're not.
0: Yeah. No, I appreciate that. So when you start out at a place like Sports Illustrated, I have to imagine the success picture. Like if you start to say like, what I want to get is a cover story. Like getting a cover story has got to be one of those like, big moments that you look ahead to and say, I'd love to have that happen. As you referenced earlier, you did a cover story in 2019 on the Browns. I don't know if that was your first, but, um, or if you had any others, uh, but I would ask this, is that the most pressure you faced in your professional career? Knowing that you're going to have a cover story at SI.
1: So, um, it was, I had seven. Um, wow. Awesome. Um, my first one was in 2017 on Julio Jones. Um, and, uh, so you're right, you're right and you're wrong in, in two ways here is that, yes, when I started at SI, the only thing, it's sort of that, you know, that beacon of cover story, it's, it has, you know, the most prestige, the most visibility, you see them, they plaster them Some are still, you know, you see them forever, they're, you know, they, they live on. Um, yep. But as you work there, you start to realize that a lot of the times, the best stories are not the cover stories um, the cover stories are the most popular, the hottest, you know, especially these days. Um, they're the stories that are, you know, that capture a moment or capture a person that makes for something that you can put on a cover. Um, so what you do realize as you go forward, even by the time I got my first one, I think, um, uh, you know, I went kind of from the the quixotic, you know, uh, Pollyannish, uh, you know, guy that came in to sort of a very, um, you know, you know, a uh, bitter old man very quickly. Um, <laughs> I kind of had a quick transformation, but so welcome I, to the media. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it throws you right in there. But, um, uh-huh. so like, I will, like, you know, I, I was excited when I had my first one, it was awesome. You know, it's, it's great to see, but at the same time, when you're, when you're working on it, it that's not the pressure to me because it doesn't change the fact of how you're going to work. It shouldn't. And it didn't for me and it can't for people, you know, it doesn't change if it's going to be the back page, if it's going to be a web story, if it's going to be, you know, on a blog somewhere, it should be the same. You should be putting the same amount of effort and thought and care into it as if it's going to be the cover story. The, the things that made it more pressure to me is when I got in later and you start doing a little bit tougher stories, some investigative type stories, stories that are actually dealing. It's, easy, you know, you're not, when you're telling a profile story, it's one thing, you know, you're, it's, the, the, the pressure there is, is low bar in terms of sports stories. When you're diving into, you know, um, what I did later on with, you know, you're going into court documents and you're telling yeah. a story that is kind of investigative, that people don't want you to tell. That's where the pressure kind of builds because then you're realizing, you know, now you're in a different space and you're trying to tell a story that, you know, maybe the person that you, that the main character didn't talk to you for the story um because you're writing around him and you so like those kind of add more pressure to me but yeah. you know just being on the cover uh it's a nice thing to have you know i got one up i was here. gonna say like um, putting that up
0: on the wall It's it's, it's nice. one of those things like once you have your name under it cover story it's yours it's like you have that forever like it can be on your wall it can be physical it can be something you can brag about to at, at office parties or wherever you are dinner parties whatever I mean it, it's a pretty cool moment don't well, undersell the,
1: it the coolest one I will say is that I did the women's final four a couple years back and when Arike Agunbowale hit the back-to-back buzzer beaters yeah and I wrote that story and I had, it was a cover the, you know the next week on, on a, with Arike Iced twice um and the cool thing there is that just a um, few months ago, Enrique's older brother got that cover tattooed on his thigh.
0: No, so, that's cool.
1: He took the byline off though. I told Enrique he should have kept my butt. He should have kept my name on his. Th- no, but um, <laughs> just that, like talking about forever. You know, he has that cover image of the headline and the you know the picture of his, yep. his sister on his thigh, and that, that was a cool one for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, growing up, I was that kid that had every Sports Illustrated cover cut out and framed and on my wall in like a like I literally had one entire wall of my bedroom that was all just Sports Illustrated covers and like those are iconic moments to me in the era that I grew up in but things have changed I mean there's a different way of of delivering content now and I love the fact that religion of sports is leaned into it as you referenced earlier where audio storytelling video storytelling that's where the audience is now I love it but I'm a data point of one. What has the audience reaction been like so far? Not only to the entire religion of sports concept, but just, let's get more granular into what you're doing. How has Lost in Sports been received so far? How, how are you feeling about it?
1: So, it, it, you know, it's twofold. One, I would say I've gotten more nice notes and letters and reviews for this than anything I ever wrote at SI. You know, it's a lot mm-hmm. more, you know, I've, I get emails. I got, you know, uh, uh People tweets and Instagram, you know, people have said very kind things about this podcast, um, which you know warms my my cold dead heart. Oh yeah, because um, it makes it all worth it in the end. But in the in the law in the in the you know the opposite point is that the marketplace right now with podcasts in general is such a glut of content, yes, and it's so dependent on what the podcast. The, the apples and the Spotify's of the world yep. want to promote. So the one day that Apple put us on their, you know, top, new and noteworthy, new and noteworthy, yep. um, on the front and center. We, Never been there,
0: by the way. We, so congratulations to you for being there. We
1: were there. We got you know. I don't know what the machinations are. I don't know how it happens. That's above my pay grade and all no, that. No,
0: I still don't get it. Yeah.
1: Um, but they put us on there, and you know that day. It was, was we shot to the top of the charts. We were, you know, we went all the way to the top 10 in sports podcasts. And I was like, this is fantastic. This is easy. You know? <laughs> yeah. Look at this. Everyone's seeing it. We got so many reviews. You had people chiming in, but yep. as soon as they move you down that list, you, people, it, it's, people aren't finding it as well as yep. easily. And we don't have, unlike, um, you know, an ESPN or an NBC or a, you know, these, the the people that make podcasts, but then promote it on their massive social media channels or on their TV networks. We don't have any of that. We're sort of very much dependent on word of mouth Mm -hmm. and Apple and Spotify, you know, supporting us. So in that manner, it's incredibly frustrating because I know that it hasn't reached the wide audience that, we would think it should reach, that it could yeah. reach, that people, because I know there's people out here that listen to podcasts, that love sports podcasts. That don't know that, about it. That don't have any idea that this exists. Yep. Just completely not even, and like, it's one thing if people know it exists and say, that's not for me. Or if they know it exists, listen to it and say, I hated that. That's fine. Maybe they hated me. Maybe they hated right. my voice. Right, Um, You know, that's fine. I'm, but if, I would love for people to know about it and then make their judgment. Because exactly. I think more people will you know, have the opposite and say, hey, this is a really fun time, and I like listening to it. Let me tell my friends.
0: We're we're three years into this show, and I still get professors and other people, other people in the industry that'll email me and say, I just found out about your show. I wish this existed when I was in college, yeah. and I can't believe how great it is. And I'm like, yeah, how do we get that, like, out yeah. there? And it, And we promote like crazy. We do yeah. everything we possibly can. It's just like, Discovery is the issue with podcasts. And I think it actually ramped up during the uh, coronavirus, during the pandemic, because everybody just started launching podcasts. And there's just enough noise out there now that it's hard to carve through. So I'm, I'm glad we're able to have this conversation because we do have a very niche audience of the, I think what would be exactly your target market. We tend to have an 18 to 30 year old audience of sports fate crazed, you know, career minded yeah. people. So hopefully we'll get a lot of people listening to your show as well. Um, a quick follow-up, when I was at yeah. CNN Sports Illustrated, uh, every once in a while, Ted Turner and Jane Fonda would just show up in our newsroom because they own the place, literally. Um, and that was always kind of, uh, I don't know, crazy or whatever. I have to know, like, do you ever get video bombed by like, Michael Strahan just popping in a Zoom meeting? Or like, does Tom Brady just like pop up and be, hey guys, what's up? You know, or, or is there still kind of a division of, uh, you, don't get, you don't get a lot of that interaction?
1: I would say uh, not, not, you know, not popping up in the zooms, but
0: uh, <laughs> that would be great though. But,
1: you know, my, they both did, you know, Michael, Michael did a, uh, a on a really awesome um, IG uh, video about masters of the gridiron. Um, you know, he did a, a little quick video about, you know, telling people about the podcast and cool. um, Tom did one about our third episode of the season on NCAA football. Um, you know, we we superimposed his face on one of the old covers, and you know he tweeted about that, so or I Instagrammed about that. So you know they're they, they're they're helping from trying to get so you know trying to leverage some of their fandom yeah. and their fame to get. Um, and they're and they're a big part of things outside my purview, kind of the oh, the big picture brand stuff. You know they're um, part of the the board of investor meetings, and they are more hands-on than people would would think in terms of you know celebrity athlete, uh, you know, running a company. They're not kind of in the nitty gritty of, uh, you know, telling me, you know, maybe this, uh, this cold open wouldn't work and maybe try, uh, you know, maybe try and frame the story this way. They, they don't do that, but, um, (laughs) it it is great to have them kind of, you know, any, any, any time you can get, you know, Michael Strahan, uh, posting an Instagram saying that, you know, he didn't fight a bear on his uh, route to the Super Bowl.
0: Uh, that, that was, that's, that's great fun. that's about as best promotion you can get yeah. um okay so your latest episode on lost in sports covers evander holyfield's ear getting bitten off by mike tyson during a fight that was 1997 i was in my second year as a production assistant at cnn sports illustrated it was madness as it happened live you on the other hand were seven and i'm not trying to out your age but you did say you were born in 1990 on one of your podcasts so i know it's Correct. public knowledge yeah. um what strikes you as you go back and cover these mysteries of sports from an era before you're kind of coming up in the industry and you deal with these past issues, 1997, 1986, and one, a lot of these other concepts, what strikes you as the biggest difference between athletes then versus athletes now that you deal with?
1: Well, I, it's, it's a great question because I did want something I really like with this is that each episode brings you to a different decade and a different sport and a different time. It's sort of time capsules. Um, so yeah, I, it's tremendously different because it just let's take Masters of the Gridiron for an example. One of the things that everyone said is that there's no way that this movie would be made today. Right. Not just because of guys, like, it's one thing to take like guys today are so brand conscious that they're not gonna dress up in these outfits and they're not going to make themselves look like idiots. Um, they just won't do it. You know, everyone's very concerned with how they look and, you know, I got to look at this picture before you tweet it and all that. So, but on the second level of it, there was no, when they had this idea, they didn't have to go through all the channels that guys would have to go through. Now, you know, athletes today, each athlete has a manager. They have a PR person. They have a PR person's assistant, they have yeah. another team that's working on their branding and, you know, their sponsorships. Um, all they had to do, Mike Babb just went to his teammates and said, hey, guys, we're making this movie. Are you in? And they said, yeah, sure. And then they filmed the movie. Like, that just would never happen
0: today. And it was like all the, it wasn't just all these fringe players either. It was no. like it was Ozzie Newsome, Ernest Biner. Like, it was, like, who, Clay Matthews was a huge, yeah. I was amazed everyone watching was Mike Golick. Yeah. Or Bob Golick. Sorry, I got yeah, the wrong Yeah, Bob, Golick. yep, yep. And Bob went on to, uh, you know, he, he I worked with the, Bob.
1: Did he? I, I, my favorite thing is that Bob took masses of the gridiron and used it as a jumping off point to then get into acting. The bell the saved years. by the bell, exactly. So like <laughs> he has was... the
0: biggest hands of anyone's I've ever shook. Really? Like, they're like meat hooks. I, I swear, working with him, I shook his hand and thought, "Oh my gosh, he's like enveloping me in this moment." And it's like hard and calloused, and like he just wanted to like hit big slabs of meat. It was. Amazing. I had
1: that experience when I shook Adrian Peterson's hand. And, oh, I bet. Funny because everyone tells you before you meet Adrian Peterson to wa- be- watch out. His handshake's going to hurt. Like, I was warned. There's a warning. So I, was, I steeled myself. I was ready. And, the, <laughs> and he the crushed sh- you. The strength in that handshake, I still feel. I think my hand is still weak. This was four years ago. It
0: was, I think it's funny that there's insider conversations, insider knowledge about, oh, a, yeah, yeah, a watch out for the handshake. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I had three like people cheat tell cheat. me. Cause I was going in to interview him for a friend. It was a whole thing. And they were just like three people. I think even the PR person was like, just be careful. He's got a Watch strong out. handshake. So Watch I was out. just like, oh man, it, it hurts. That's a strong guy. But, um, All right, I got, I got you off the subject off the, of but, athlete differences. It is, so it, we'll get. I would just say it, it, everything's different, you know, not just the way athletes are you know, the money changes in sports. And, with, and when money changes, everything changes. You know, you go back to, you know, some of these errors of the guys I'm talking to and they worked summer jobs. You know, they they yeah. lived next to their teammates. They went, you know, we have our next story that's coming out um, in two weeks. Next week? Oh, God, next week. Um, and it's a, you know, a, a small town. Um, I, get, I, get, I think it's publicly knowledge. It's on the Hartford Whalers, the hockey team, um, the that Whalers. disappeared, that is now more popular than ever before. Mm-hmm. And why do they still have this staying power? What did that team mean to that city? And one of the big things is that in Hartford in the 70s and the 80s, in this tiny city, this town that had a hockey team somehow, um, these guys were a part of the community. They went to the grocery store. They had drinks after the game with fans. I have fans telling me, oh yeah, we used to sit at the bar and we talk about the game. You don't have that anymore. Nope. That's not possible. You know, these guys, and that's not to say it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. You know, that's how sports, sports are big business now. It went from thousands to millions to billions. Yeah. And when that changes, everything changes. So. Um, yeah, I, do I romanticize and and dream of of being born thirty years earlier and getting to fly on the SI jet and you know write nine thousand word stories that no one says is too long and mm-hmm. you know get to do that stuff with a bonus piece and and you know have a blank check receipt that you can then turn into a you know five hundred dollar reimbursement that all those guys did at SI back in the day? Yeah, of course. But yeah. um, you sounds know, sounds kind of cool. You're born into the the generation you're born into, and you make the best of it. So. Yeah. It is what it is, but you know that's what (laughs) I love. That's that's part of what I wanted. You know, to me, I I I wanted to go back in time. I wanted to kind of have a time capsule. I wanted to kind of uh, have. I think we're in a... I I personally believe that we're in a time right now when people love nostalgia. They want everything is sort of about remembering how things used to be, whether they Mm -hmm. used to be better or not. People like to think they were, and you want to go back to that time. So that's what I wanted to do here is kind of have a nostalgic trip down memory lane. Um,
0: And I think it's so much more, like you said, than just a remember when type story. Like there's so much more layers and depth to it and angles and like, offshoot storylines and it just really it builds into this holistic kind of approach to storytelling that becomes interesting no matter what you know going into it no matter whatever your you know preconceived notions might be for the era you do a great job you and your team of, of putting together these stories in such an interesting way like i'm, I'm seriously in awe um i'll finish up with this because i've already taken so much of your time and i love this conversation i'm so i'm so happy we're having it We've thrown out a lot of words today, like creative, assertive, confident. And if, if you were advising young people, somebody who's at UVA right now, somebody who's at some program wherever, that they're like, I really want to work in sports journalism someday, what skills or traits, what would you advise them to lean into? What would be that thing looking back on that you would say, this is, the, this is some of the linchpins that you need to focus on?
1: I'm going to give two answers here. One is right. my... Um... The answer I wish I could give f- with full earnest, which is um, do the work. Like, you know, if you can write well and if you can do the interviews and if you file a copy that is clean and on time and is, you know, cohesive, it, it, it that's, that means a lot. So, like, just practice the essentials is what... Um, my journalism mentor Sandy Padway would say, work on the essentials. The essentials are reporting. You know, report well. Talk to people. Work on your interviews. Work on you know how to write a sentence. Write one sentence. Write one true sentence, and then follow it with another one, as Ernest Hemingway would say. Like that's the the basics that you if you master, and if you you know no one masters it, but if you get those down, you know you'll you'll turn out a good story. If you can if you can just do the essentials and stick to those, tell fair stories, tell true stories. Don't, you know, do things that veer off that course. I think that to me, that's what I would have said. Um, You know, that's what I would love to be able to say. And I do think it's true. That's I'm not saying I'm not saying that because that is work on that and Mm. do that and you'll be fine. You know, that's important. And hopefully that will be recognized. Um, I say hopefully that will be recognized because I would say years ago that it would be recognized. I like to believe. You do the work and people will find the work. They'll, they'll come to it. They'll appreciate it. Mm-hmm. But we're getting further and further away from that in this business, probably in all businesses, but I can speak to this one. Um, there are so many good writers out there, young good writers that aren't recognized, that aren't getting those opportunities, that are overshadowed by people who don't do the basics, that aren't writing well, that aren't reporting because of one very obvious thing, it's because they can tweet well. Mm -hmm. They can tweet tendentious things and get an uproar and get attention for themselves. Um, So the one thing that I would tell people to do and to get better at is self-aggrandizement. Be very good at saying how good you are, because those people seem to be the furthest ahead in our industry right now. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're I, I, and I say that with a grain of salt, because I hope you don't take this advice, and I hope it isn't the way it is. but like, <laughs> but we're dealing the, in reality. But in, if you' like and I'm not I don't take my advice. I don't tweet. I bear I didn't tweet for years, and now I'm starting to tweet again because uh, the podcast and trying to get some stuff. but I don't like if I would go back and you know tell yourself, you know, I would have tweeted when I was at SI all the time, I wouldn't because I wouldn't be able to get myself to do it, but like in a, in a vacuum. You know, tweet about the movie you're watching and the food you're eating, and say you hate it, and say that you know a sandwich isn't a hot dog, isn't a sandwich, and that you know all these things that you can stir up some conversation and get people to talk, and and get your name out there, and get pe- even if people hate you, even if people say this guy's an idiot, it doesn't matter anymore because your name's out there, and those it's it's a sad reality, but like that's yeah. what we're in now. So um, you know, tweet a lot. Tweet about yourself, and if you can live with yourself and do that, more power to you. I personally can't, um, so I'm hoping that just working hard and sticking to the essentials and the basics will do the job. But um, that, that's the, the, the key to success these days is, you know, tell people how good you are and, you know, tweet all about it and just get it out there. And, you know, then you'll get the conversation and you'll get a job and, you know, you'll be on TV within a few years.
0: I love the realism of what you're saying. And yet at the same time, I am, I think we're like uh, brethren because I can't do it either. I focus very much on the quality of the work, promote the good. Like, I'm listening to this interview thinking of, like, oh, that's a really good snippet. I got to turn that into a good piece of content yeah. that I can share out on social media because that brings value to people. And if I can do that, then that's good work and people will gravitate to our show. But it doesn't always work that way.
1: No. And if I was
0: having more arguments about, dress colors or hot dogs or sandwiches or whatever or you know hundreds of other topics that don't interest me you're right i'd probably have a bigger brand you'd probably have a bigger brand but i like focusing on what matters and i hope that the people in the audience will do that as well and maybe layer in some of these other things i hope if you're good at it if you're good at it great but don't absolutely don't force in authenticity either no authenticity i should try to say that like in a complete way
1: people will see it you'll get you know i that's why i couldn't like yeah you know people will notice if you're not being authentic um, Yeah. although again i don't know if they care cuz a lot of those people don't on know tv if they are are but you're right if we went on here and for the last hour we just screamed at each other about yeah. um i don't even know anything it could be yeah. anything just w- one thing after the other um and then you took those clips and you know made it oh, yeah. into uh, we'd, we'd be we'd be stars we'd be in a, you know on a beach somewhere by by exactly. next week so um what beach yeah. do you want to go
0: to? Should we should we just start fighting now and have some debate concept? By the way, I would like to do announce to the world that um, when I worked at CNN Sports Illustrated, we actually kind of launched Stephen A. Smith as a as a on air talent. So go. I feel like I have a, a bear some responsibility for this tone of debate hate kind of content journalism nowadays and I'm sorry yeah I
1: apologize. It, come, it all comes back to you huh? Oh, I, well
0: I didn't actually make the decision but it was part of one of our our NBA insider shows and we were looking for beat reporters that had some personality and he came on as one of our columnists and it kind of took off like wild from there our network ended up going under but he had a, he's turned it into a nice career and yeah. he's got that beach house and whatever and uh you and I sure, are just sitting here telling yeah. good stories
1: You know, I'm still I I like to believe I still believe that everything is cyclical. um, And, you know, when one thing goes down, the other thing rises and then that will eventually switch. And I do believe that right now we're in a stage of the world where attention spans are low and reading and intelligence and anything, you know, about smart, creative storytelling is devalued. Yeah. Um, people just don't really care that much, at least the vast majority of it. But I do hold on to a hope that those things will switch. Eventually, they'll turn, and it'll, it'll rise again. You know, it'll, have the, it'll come back. People will care. Because I do think if we lose, we're, we're, we're in a world where people are devaluing something. But then also, when they come upon it, that's really good. Like at SI, all of the most read stories all of them were the long form stuff. Yeah. And they continued to f- move further and further and further away from it. And yet every year, the top 10, 25, every one of them were the long, the long form, form stories, yeah. not the clickbait stuff, not the lists. Like, yeah. So it's a weird kind of world where eventually we're gonna devalue it enough where the people that do it don't have jobs and the kids that want to do it don't you know, follow that path anymore. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to get to a world where the audience says, wait, where are all those things? You know, I can't just keep clicking on lists anymore. I want to read something, you know, right. and then maybe we'll get it back and maybe it'll be too late at that point. But, you know, I, I do think we wait long enough. You keep doing the work. You stay the course. You do what you can do and hope for the best and hope that eventually it'll be, you know, recognized. And, you know, because you can't. You're right. You can't be inauthentic. I couldn't. You know, no, I couldn't do, I'm, you know, as you said, like I, I tried to find a new way to do the same thing, you know, instead of, I wasn't going to say, all right, now I'm going to start writing, you know, blog posts and I'm going to start right. writing these kind of posts that, you know, maybe would get some clicks. I said, how can I do what I wanted to do, but maybe in a different way? Yeah. So. We'll see. If this one doesn't work out, I don't know what the next one is. but No, you know, well, we'll see. I tell you,
0: I'm still a, a strong believer in that the quality content will will always survive and have an interested audience. And I think you've done an amazing job with Lost in Sports. I really do love it. I've listened to all the episodes. I enjoy the storytelling very much. I know the effort that you put into it because, as somebody who's been a content creator for a long time, I can hear the passion and the quality that goes into it, and know the level of work it takes to put into that. It's not churn and burn. It's so much effort that goes into it. You've outlined for that for everybody today. So I'm just excited to have this conversation and I hope that everybody in the audience subscribes to Lost in Sports and helps to see it grow. Um, I think it's amazing and I'm, I'm so glad we were able to have this conversation, Ben.
1: Please, please subscribe unless you want to see me on you know, on TikTok trying to find uh, my next uh, medium to tell the story. but
0: No TikTok.
1: If, if not, subscribe. And this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Brian. I really enjoyed it.
0: No, I I really enjoyed it too, Ben. And th- thanks a lot for coming on. And everybody, I guarantee everyone will subscribe. I'm going to force them to. Thanks. Tell man. your
1: tell your friends, tell your mother. Everyone subscribe.
0: <laughs> Thank you to Ben for coming on the show. I really enjoyed talking to him. I know I say that a lot, but you can always tell when you kind of connect with somebody, and I hope that Ben and I remain friends cuz I enjoyed talking to him a lot and I I want to pick his brain about so many other things that he's experienced in the sports media and just being out there and interviewing people and getting to know different people in the industry than I know. So it's just always fun to have those conversations. Thank you for listening, everybody. There's so much advice in there you should all really glean and and apply to your life, and I hope it works for you. Whether you want to work in sports journalism or not, I think there's just some themes in there that can apply to just about anything. And you got to subscribe to Lost in Sports. I'm telling you, it's my favorite podcast right now. I just... I eat it up it's so great uh, thank you for listening please rate review and subscribe wherever you listen all that stuff does really help you may hear it a lot like eh, yeah 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 whatever no actually rating a show that you like and giving them that credit does make a difference and reviewing and putting it out there it makes a difference too it helps us uh, display higher in the podcast rankings and in the district directories and whatnot, and help us build our audience so all those little things help for all the effort that we're putting in to bring you stuff that can entertain and inform you so So thank you for doing that. I will talk to you all next week.